It didn't last very long, but scientists at the National Nuclear Security Administration did run a test that resulted in nuclear fusion late last year. Fusion means the reaction put out more energy than the input to produce it. The proof of concept got lots of acclaim, and it produced finalists in the Service to America medals program. Joining Federal News Network's Tom Temin earlier, Sarah Nelson, director of the NNSA's Defense Programs Office, and Samantha Calkins, program manager for High Density and Ignition Science. Let's begin with what actually happened. I mean, this was not something that was large scale that you could observe with the human eye like, you know, Los Alamos big boy test. What really happened? Tell us the layout physically and what you actually did. I can take that one, Tom, Samantha. So really, you got to think about how NIF works. And basically, it starts with just a, a weak little initial laser pulse that's split and amplified multiple times until there's exactly 192 main laser amplifier beams. And those are guided by mirrors into amplifiers, filters, to ensure that its beam is uniform, smooth, just pristine quality beam. And that beam is processed into these quads. So that's like two by two arrays of beams. They're transported into a target chamber. And that target chamber is really where the experiment happens. The beams are focused into the end of a cylinder that's called a whole ROM. And that whole ROM holds a tiny little hydrogen fuel. And just for some context, this whole ROM is, is about the size of the, the top of a pencil, the, that little eraser. There you go. Sarah's got a picture of it there. And so that laser energy that's focused inside, it's inside the surface of the whole ROM where it's focused that creates a bunch of X-rays, um, which blow off the capsule fuel wall, resulting in a rocket-like implosion. And that compresses the fuel to the core reaches about 100 times the density of lead. So that's really, really dense. This causes hydrogen atoms to fuse, creating helium nuclei, and that releases a whole bunch of energy, high-energy neutrons. And if this implosion is symmetrical and you've got just the perfect conditions for compression and temperature, that's really going to create what happened on December 5th where more energy was released than the energy that was put in. And besides that, it had to also overcome a bunch of cooling effects that that create X-ray losses, electron conduction, implosion expansion, that really would kill any kind of ignition condition. It was an amazing feat that happened on December 5th. Yeah, I'm going to have you to our next outdoor cookout because that was a really (laughs) fascinating piece of uh, recitation, honestly. Well, a lot of the emphasis in the popular press was, you know, someday we'll have fusion energy and that's kind of a long shot at this point, and, but we know that there's a proof of concept. Also interesting and not as widely reported, though, was how this can help the NNSA's own mission of evaluating nuclear warheads and understanding the internals of what's going on with them in an age when we are proscribed by treaty from blowing them up to make sure they work. Dr. Nelson, maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Happy to, Tom. So that's absolutely right. There has been a lot of coverage in the press about the energy implications for the experiment at the National Ignition Facility out at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab last December. But NIF was actually built for stockpile stewardship purposes. 
And already the program and our research is benefiting from the ignition experiment in December and the repeat experiments that we've had subsequent to that for understanding nuclear weapons conditions. Because the conditions that uh, Samantha described just previously are those that occur in the sun and those that occur should a nuclear weapon detonate. And as you rightly mentioned, since 1992, we have not detonated a nuclear weapon test. And this is one of the many ways that science-based stockpile stewardship helps inform and mean ensure that we maintain a safe, secure, and reliable stockpile in the absence of that testing. So we're actually using these data already to help the stockpile. It sounds like it's something that is an almost an artificial intelligence or a data application, a way of I don't know. Are you able to measure what's going on inside a nuclear weapon? Is there any way of intuiting what's going on inside under the shield that's on top of it to know that, I mean, the ultimate goal, right, is to know that if it had to blow up, it would, correct? And that's the purpose of the program that Samantha and I are in. So I'm the acting director for the Office of Experimental Sciences within NNSA Defense Program. Samantha is one of our program managers for high energy density physics and uh, ignition science. And that's one of the many activities that we have going on in the experimental science office. We do this work in partnership with our colleagues in advanced simulation computing and also the engineering and tech mat offices to ensure that our stockpile has the best and brightest working on those problems so that we don't have to resume underground nuclear testing. So there's, there's a variety of ways that we can, can look at things without resorting to those kind of tests. We're speaking with Dr. Sarah Nelson. She's director of the Defense Programs Office of the Experimental Sciences at the National Nuclear Security Administration, and with Dr. Samantha Calkins, program manager of high-density energy and ignition science for stockpile applications. You know, those titles and the work and the apparatus that you command strikes me that a nation that would have nuclear weapons needs to have the infrastructure of brains and technology to operate it and maintain it responsibly. I'm getting that message pretty strongly from this interview and probably not the case of every nation that has or would have these. So I can't really comment on what other nations do or do not have, but I know that it is an absolute priority uh, for the NNSA and the uh, Department of Energy to maintain our skilled workforce, especially as we get farther and farther away from that, that cadre of people that have experienced underground nuclear tests, and especially since we're not doing them anymore. So having not only the great workforce, the skilled, experienced workforce that's learned from those people from that Cold War time to uh, the facilities that we use, such as the National Ignition Facility and our other laboratories at Los Alamos and Sandia and the Nevada Natural Security Sites and other partner universities, we work together to try to maintain the really unique infrastructure that we have to support these highly specialized experiments that we need to run to underpin the reliability of the stockpile. Sure. And since that experiment and since the receiving of finalist categories in the the Service to America Medals Program, what has your life been like? Because you are two very prominent women in STEM, and women in STEM is one of the national talked about priorities, but you're living it day by day in a very high level. 
I'll go first and then I'll turn it over to Samantha for her perspective. So I get to do a lot of fun things like this. I I get to talk to people about the work that we've done, why it's important, what's driven us to pursue careers like this. All the way back to my undergraduate alma mater recently uh, did a little piece on me in the the college paper, which was pretty great. And it's nice to be an advocate and a, I won't call it an ambassador, but um, I guess I just did (laughs) for for women in STEM and, and women in defense as well. And Samantha? So you asked what has changed. (laughs) When I think about the science that we're doing uh, within defense programs, I think we have now an opportunity to to keep on going, to push the boundaries of what the National Ignition Facility and what the Inertial Confinement Fusion Program can do. And so right now we're working across the entire national program thinking about what is that future? What is the science plan we need to embark on in the next 10 years? And so it's really exciting being a a scientist and being able to kind of look towards the future of what's possible. Sure. And just what are the prospects for fusion being a practical function? I kind of like it to quantum computing. Yes, there are small scale quantum computers, but you have to freeze something to almost absolute zero. And so the apparatus to do that makes a actual commercial scale quantum computer Nothing we're going to see. Some people say never. Some people say, well, maybe 10, maybe 50 years to get enough qubits to be able to do real computational science. What about fusion? That strikes me as kind of the same conundrum. Yes, we can show that it works, but to get it to where you can plug your toaster into it, can that happen in any reasonable time period? I'll leave the fusion energy side to Sarah. She can talk to that in a moment. But for the actual stockpile stewardship program, we are using this platform now, as Sarah mentioned. We're not waiting years. We're using it now to inform information on materials, better understand and assess the performance of our aging stockpile, which is really important for us. And so we don't have to wait years. We can use this now. We can have these extreme conditions test what we can do. Dr. Sarah Nelson is director of the Defense Programs Office of Experimental Sciences at the National Nuclear Security Administration, and Dr. Samantha Calkins is program manager of High Energy Density and Ignition Science for Stockpile Applications. Both are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? 
and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.